Knowing the Second Vatican Council requires us to read and understand the documents in the light of sacred scripture, tradition, and the teaching authority of the magisterium. If we are to speak and act in the spirit of the Council, we must be sure that it is the Holy Spirit speaking through the timeless teachings of Christ's Church. And now, Father Brian Mullady and Christ, the Light of the Nations. This is Father Brian Mullady of the Dominican Order, coming to you on Mother Angelica's Worldwide Catholic Radio. We've been continuing our examination in our program, Christ, the Light of the Nations, of the document in Vatican II called Christ the Light of the Nations, Lumen Gentium in Latin. Last time I explained that this document was historically an attempt to uh, explain what the church thought of itself in light of all the centuries and centuries of definition of the Holy Trinity, of the Incarnation, of the sacraments, what formally speaking it was that we believed about ourselves. The recent Senate of Bishops, 1985, one of them, talks about this idea in its final report. This is what it says in chapter 1. The ecclesiology of communion, communio, is the central and fundamental idea of the Council's documents. Now, this is because, as I explained to you last time, the document Lumen Gentium and the document on Revelation, some of which we'll be quoting in this program, De Verbum, the Word of God, obviously relate very closely together. The Word of God is Christ, the Light of the Nations. And according to the Council and to many authorities after the Council, these two documents form the dogmatic basis on which all the rest of the ideas and all the rest of the pastoral practice is based. If the bishops of the world say that the idea of communion or communio is central to these two documents, then it must be central also to all the rest of the documents that are Explained. It logically makes sense to be that way. Now, communio, communion, in what? Well, as the Father has sent me, so do I send you. And then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. This was the passage we used in the last program as the foundation for all this discussion. And what I attempted to show you was that it's the Trinity, communion in the Trinity, that is the source of this union, which is the Catholic Church, and is the source of all the things that we must understand about what it is the Council taught. You know, in the 60s, it was common to put up banners in churches. I think it is in some places today, too, but especially where I was, I was studying theology at Berkeley, I call it Berserkly, in the 60s, and there was a very popular banner at the time, people used to put up in sanctuaries, that said, with a quotation from one of the fathers of the church, St. Irenaeus, the glory of God is man fully alive. 
which seem to emphasize the horizontal dimension as being the only source of divinity. It seemed to emphasize the triumph of secular humanism. It seemed to emphasize almost exactly the opposite of what we have been teaching for many, many years in the church. Interest in the next world or interest in the uh, thing that goes beyond our abilities to accomplish. Well, it's true that St. Irenaeus says the glory of God is man fully alive. But, brothers and sisters, that's not the end of the quote. What the quote actually says, and you can see now how everything's reversed, if you really read the whole thing, is the glory of God is man fully alive. But, man fully alive is man when he sees God in the face, which, of course, places the whole emphasis of our souls being fully alive, fully ordered, fully integrated, not by communion with ourselves, but by communion with him. Communion, then, the communio, which the Synod of Bishops in 1985 says was the central idea of all the Council's document, is, first of all, communion in grace, a sharing through grace, in the life of the Father, given us through Christ, in the Holy Spirit. This grace is not something which we can bring about ourselves. No, nope. it's a divine call. It's realized in the sacraments, which gives us this grace, and in the virtuous life by which we live this grace. Now, what does this mean for the church the church, as we experience it in this world, is a kind of horizontal dimension where we see lots of warts and lots of weakness and lots of earthen vessels, lots of fleshly instruments, all of whom are not perfect, and yet have a perfect power. Not earthly power, but the power of the sacraments and the power to begin to grow in the life of the Holy Trinity. You could say that the vertical dimension of communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the primary source of the horizontal dimension. The Synod of Bishops goes on to say, the ecclesial body, that's the church's body, is healthy in the measure in which Christ's grace poured out through the Holy Spirit is accepted by its members. For this reason, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one loyalty to the Word of God, one hierarchical structure, one Episcopal college presided over by one Pope who is the visible head and source of unity. And the head of the church is Christ. As the Father has sent me, so do I send you. But the spirit of the church, the soul of the church, the love of the church, its cement, you could say, that draws it together, has to be the Holy Spirit. What makes the church to be a society different than every other society? And we'll be emphasizing this ad nauseam till you're exhausted in hearing it, is the divine life dwelling in it. In other words, the church is not a mere sociological body. It is not a political body. It shares nothing in common with human communities except that it has a human face. The church is one with the society found in heaven. In fact, that's where it's 
perfection is found there, not here. This communion in grace is the source of another great principle of the council, which we will be examining a little later in our examination of Lumen Gentium, collegiality. Now, I know many of you think that collegiality is parliamentary procedure. It's the fact that the church, which was now once monarchical, now decides that it's a parliament, a democracy. Well, as I will show you a little later, nothing could be further from the truth. Collegiality emphasizes not democracy. It doesn't emphasize that everybody has a vote about what the doctrine is or something like that, nor that we can dissent from things like we do in earthly societies to try to bring about change in things. What collegiality emphasizes is that there is a college, a permanently fixed body with unequal powers and unequal authority, which by the establishment of Christ exercises through service authority in the church. This collegiality, again, is based in the unity of the Holy Trinity, a unity in which each of the members in an order gives and receives truth and love. This communion, this collegiality, is at the source, basis, and foundation of everything that the church does. And everything in the church, then, is not looked upon as a right. Gosh, don't you get sick and tired of all these people who go on and on today about how they have a right to be ordained? Women have to be ordained because it's against women's rights. This is not a question of rights. It's a question of service. The service of Peter, among other things, is to confirm this communion. The service of Peter is to confirm communion by establishing unity, to be a visible sign of unity, a cause of unity, a cause of unity, first of all, by communion in faith, by teaching the right faith. And we ourselves experience a participation in this communion with the Trinity by professing the right faith. Dissent is always dissent. Dissent in no sense is equal to the church's teaching. Though there is a legitimate freedom of inquiry concerning the documents of the church and the doctrines of the church accorded to theologians, this authority in no sense is a rival teaching authority, a rival magisterium to the bishop's magisterium. How could it be? If the bishops taught one thing in the person of the pope or in their collegial actions like their synods or their ecumenical councils and the theologians taught another thing how could there be unity how can the holy trinity teach against itself no what the vatican council wanted to define was what should men believe but more than that because there are no new doctrines formally defined what does it mean to be a believer a catholic and a member of the church today in other words what lumen gentium the doctrine on the church document on the church is trying to do is to give the definition of an attitude an attitude which of course has very concrete expression in words and ideas and concepts and definitions but an attitude which shows faith which shows the obedience of mind given to divine revelation which expresses the fact that human reason, human feelings, are never sufficient in themselves to bring about human perfection. 
which encourages man to long rather to lose himself to God's ideas and to God's love, to bring about the free submission of his intellect and will to the God who reveals, to explain what the society of faith is like, not only in a defined sense, but also in the sense of those who live this definition, to show what it means to have a supernatural union on earth, to help us to understand what the practice of religion really means. And here, of course, we come up against a very big difficulty of modern people. I've listened to many, many radio programs from other uh, people, especially those who are not Catholics, who continue to say, well, you know, there's faith and there's religion. Religion is looked upon as external rites and ceremonies, what you do in church, and it's sociological organization. And this is supposed to have almost nothing to do, really, with faith. I think these people don't understand what it means to say that Jesus took flesh. People will say to me, well, you know, why do I need a priest to stand between me and God? Why do I need a pope? I can go direct to God. Well, if you don't need a priest and you don't need a pope, then why do you need Jesus' flesh? If man can go direct to God without any physical mediators, without any fleshly mediators, why do we need Jesus' flesh crucified on the cross? Why do we need holy wounds from which the Holy Spirit is poured forth? And to accept Jesus as your Savior, of course, means to accept what he did in his body. And if we're to believe John, one of the things he did in his body was breathe into the apostles, share in his mission. After all, wasn't that what he was preparing them for? How can we interpret these strange words as the Father has sent me, so do I send you? Was it only the twelve Jesus was sending in this way? This seems very strange. If he wanted to be with them until the end of time, he sent the twelve as an extension of his flesh, and he sent the twelve to participate, not was their own by right, to participate in the same power, in the same life, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit experience in the Trinity. You know, the Trinity's life is necessary to understand everything that exists. Thomas Aquinas, that famous theologian, said very beautifully, one cannot understand creation even creation, even the difference between the cats, the dogs, the plants, the rocks, man, the sun, without understanding the Trinity. If all things come forth from the Trinity, then all things must return to the Trinity, and all things are like the Trinity. There are these beautiful expressions that St. Thomas uses in the Summa. He calls the sun... Creator genitus, the begotten creator. You know, in the creed we say, begotten, not made. Have you ever thought about what that means? That means Jesus is not a creature. He's not created, not made. But he does come forth from the Father. He comes forth from the Father by an eternal birth of holy truth. Not less than the Father, but equal to him. And you know, truth represents ideas or thoughts in the mind. We distinguish between a tree, uh, not a tree, but things that we make. Things like a chair and a table and a house and a spaceship 
and a television network, a microphone. We distinguish between all those things because they have different ideas, different structures in our minds. The same is true with the very idea of God. The very difference between things that exist participate in the begotten creator, the creator genitus. St. Thomas also calls the Holy Spirit creator procedens, the proceeding creator. Because, remember the creed, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit is the love that comes forth from the Father and the Son. And just as all things are moved by love to enjoy unity, goodness, beauty, enjoyment, so everything that moves in the world, the very burning of fire, the enjoyment and warmth of the sun, the delight of the animals, the unity of the plants and taking uh, the energy from the sun and the nutrients from the soil and water and making them a beautiful growing thing. All of this movement symbolizes or actually expresses the very desire of these things, not intellectual desire, but the movement, the passion of these things to be united to God again. They are not God, but because they come forth from him, they seek to return to him. And only when we see and understand the Holy Trinity is it possible to see that everything on earth in some sense reminds us of the Trinity and makes us return to the Trinity. The knowledge of divine persons is necessary to make us think rightly of creation. If it's necessary for us to think rightly of creation, it's even more necessary for us to think rightly of us. After all, we exist, we have a spiritual soul, we have an intellect, which is like the word, and we have a will, the love, which is like the spirit. Man, you could say, is like a little microcosm, a little image, a little trinity. Since we come forth in the Trinity and are to return to the Trinity, how is it possible for us to think rightly of ourselves unless we can enter into the very power of the Trinity itself? And we can't do this by any other means than by grace. And so Jesus came to earth that we might truly enter into the life and mystery of the Holy Trinity. The whole source and foundation of the Church is that the Holy Trinity might be the source of our communion with ourselves, of the peace and order within us, of the very light we experience as people that helps us to understand the world, and by drawing us on toward him. This is the reason, for example, the new catechism of the Catholic Church, if you've looked at it, divides the treatment of the Church into the people of God, beginning number 781, the body of Christ, beginning in 787, and the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit, beginning in 797. You see here the Trinity, even in the terms the church uses to describe herself, as placed right in the center of the mystery. And this is, of course, the way we have to interpret everything that is written in this great document. The Catechism puts it quite well, all I'm going to say to you in the first part of this series. In 771 it says this, 
The one mediator Christ established and ever sustains here on earth his holy church. He breathed in them and said, Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. The community of faith, hope, and charity. As the Father has sent me, so do I send you. As a visible organization through which he communicates truth and grace to all men. The church, therefore, is at the same time and this is a quotation from our great document in chapter 8, paragraph 8, Lumen Gentium, a society structured with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ, a visible society and a spiritual communion, the earthly church and the church endowed with heavenly riches. In other words, again, quoting our great document, Lumen Gentium, paragraph 8, these dimensions together constitute one complex reality which comes together from a human and a divine element. And then the Catechism quotes beautifully both another source from the Second Vatican Council and a wonderful sermon by a medieval theologian, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Listen to these. This is just magnificent. The Church is essentially both human and divine. Visible, but endowed with invisible realities, just like Christ. Fleshly body, divine truth, commune with life in the Spirit. Zealous in action and dedicated to contemplation. Present in the world, but a pilgrim. So constituted that in her the human is directed toward and subordinated to the divine, the visible to the invisible, action to contemplation, and this present world to that city yet to come, the object of our quest, which is heaven. O humility, O sublimity, both tabernacle of cedar and sanctuary of God, earthly dwelling and celestial palace, house of clay and royal hall, body of death and temple of light, and at last, both object of scorn to the proud and bride of Christ. She is black but beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, for even if the labor and pain of her long exile may have discolored her, yet heaven's beauty has adorned her. In this document, then, we want to first of all begin with Christ, not because he shows man in a secular humanism to us. Not because he's just like Gandhi with a, a kind of special awareness of himself. You know, this New Age stuff teaches that uh, everybody's a Christ because everybody just has to discover the divine in themselves. If you've listened to any of the series on uh, PBS in the United States, public broadcasting, of Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth, uh, he considers Jesus to be a myth just like Lancelot, Sir Lancelot and the Holy Grail or something like that. And his idea is that all myths are merely projections of man trying to find the divine in himself. In other words, it's we who accomplish in ourselves divinity by our own power. It's just that we don't really know it. It's almost a reflection of Nietzsche. Uh, you know, Nietzsche was the most honest person in the whole modern era. 
And the reason is because the whole modern era is based on the idea that either human reason or human feelings are what can make you divine. You don't need any power from outside of you or help or grace or something like that. And if we have a God, it's something we've projected about ourselves. Nietzsche, the most honest person in the last two centuries, said, well, if God is just the projection of man, and man has all the power in himself, then deposit or hold out for belief in the existence of God is basically to rob man of taking responsibility for himself. So, the best way for man to become man is for God to die. He was very honest about that. Isn't it true that in our modern age, when we try to base everything on us, the fact that we don't need uh, luck, we don't need providence, all we need is just hard work, we could save our souls almost by that. We don't need to lose ourselves to anything higher than ourselves. We don't need a state, society beyond the state. We don't need any other interest in a social communion beyond ourselves that really we should just end the notion of God then. This is just silly. It's what's produced the two world wars of this century. It's what's produced Dachau and Auschwitz. A complete desertion of the idea of what grace really is. So, this great document, Lumen Gentium, has as its first base to show Christ, not as someone who discovered the divine in himself, but as someone who was divine, because he was the word of God, and who helps us to have communion with someone outside ourselves who is divine. This communion is the source of what the church, at least the Catholic church, understands itself to be. It's the source of our authority. It's the source of the apostle, the laity. It's the source of the place of the church in God's design. We must therefore keep in mind that what this church gives us the ability to do is enter into union with the Holy Trinity. And it shows that union in the fact that the church is at the same time people of God body of Christ, temple of the Holy Spirit. By the way, a little footnote on this, how it's possible for people to think that people like Gandhi are even saints. I know Gandhi did a lot of good for the people of India. But you know, Gandhi's favorite book was Constipation and Civilization. <laughs> it, it's, it's odd that people have taken these characters because they've been useful for some human good and exalted them to be equal to Christ. We can't do this. This has, makes no sense. The light of the nations is the one that introduces us into the light of the Holy Trinity. Let us therefore look for this light. Let us long for it. Let us see in this light the very power and the source of human existence. And as we give ourselves to God, May Christ, the light of the nations, the revelation of the Gentiles, and the glory of Israel lead us to himself. Thank you for listening to Christ, the Light of the Nations with Father Brian Willady. 